0: All right. Thank you for the good singing. You can open your Bibles now to 2nd Peter chapter 3 if you would, please. 2nd Peter 3, and by the grace of God, we'll finish today the short series that we've done. We've gone verse by verse through 2nd Peter chapters 1 and 2. Today we'll try to go all the way through chapter 3. 2nd Peter chapter 3, and we'll begin reading verse 13, followed by a word of prayer. We'll be talking about the fact the fact of the second coming 2 Peter 3 verse 13 Peter writes nevertheless we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness don't we have something great to look forward to Amen. On that note, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity today to gather, to talk about you, talk about your word, and remind ourselves of this wonderful promise. Lord, we don't know exactly when. You didn't tell us the day or the hour. We just know that we're excited that we know one day you will come. And Father, even in the middle of this sermon, that'd be fine, Lord. What a wonderful way to end our time Here on this planet, to have you come back in the middle of a church service. Father, until that time comes, we ask that you would continue to meet with us through the Holy Spirit. Please speak through me. I pray that you would prepare the hearts of the people to receive now the seed of the Word of God. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Peter reminds us here that we have something absolutely wonderful to look forward to. But I want to zoom out. A little bit as we look at the entirety of this book. We're not, let's not just get lost in in chapter three in one verse. There's there's a, a reason that this is so important. In chapter one, Peter pointed out how Jesus Christ came to offer us a knowledge of God. We call this the faith. And once you have been saved, it means you have obtained that precious faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are now able to have a personal relationship with God, to know Him, not just historical facts about Him, but to know Him personally, intimately. The Bible then encourages us in chapter 1 that once you've received the faith, you are to go further. You are to grow in that faith. And then Peter, at the end of chapter 1, he gave us some structure for that growth. The facilitator of furthering your faith is the scripture. So we can look at the Bible and know what we what the truth is about Jesus Christ and God the Father and how to walk with him. We can check our lives, examine our hearts, and see, are we in line with the way God wants us to live, to believe, to feel, to treat others? Then in chapter two, I want you to see how this builds. Faith that goes further according to the scripture. What could mess that up? A false prophet. If you get mixed up or confused because somebody came along with a false teaching, and they were doing it to gain fame and fortune, right? They made merchandise of you, but they confused you about the true nature of Jesus Christ. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Maybe they 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 created a spiritual atmosphere of fear. And you became afraid of things that you shouldn't be afraid of, and you thought Jesus was one way when he's actually another way, that can undo the very work of the Holy Spirit within your heart. So that's why Peter devoted an entire chapter about warning us of the dangers and the frightening reality of false teachers and prophets. Faith that should be furthered according to the scripture. Don't get confused by false teachers and then Peter's going to drive it home. He is going to give us in chapter 3 what we should be aiming at. He is going to orientate us. You've heard this phrase before, if you aim at nothing, you will hit it. (laughs) You understand that? If you aim at nothing, you will hit it. We need to know what's the goal. What are we pressing towards? What is the next big thing on God's calendar Peter reminds us not by talking about the Lord coming back, right? And his promise that all, everything you can see will one day pass away and one day we're going to be standing face to face with Christ. It reminds us that there's more to life than just the 70 or 80 years that you have down here. It's very easy to lose sight of that and begin to think that everything that has to do with our existence will end at the grave. There's something beyond the grave. We need to have a larger vision of our existence. Peter's going to take time to biblically orientate us today. But when we read this chapter, let's make it clear. Peter is not going to be proving every nuance and every small little detail that, that touches on the second coming of Christ. He's not setting out to prove that it's a fact. He has accepted that it's a fact, and you'll see why in just the first couple of verses, but he is going to focus, I believe, on two things. Number one, because Jesus' second coming is a fact, it is a biblical fact, what should we do about it? Should we just acknowledge it, just believe it? Is that enough? Or should it actually have an effect on how we live and how we function in this world? And then also, this fact of the second coming It brings a few challenges, right? Some people don't accept it. Some people raise some questions. And Peter's going to help us deal with those challenges to the fact of Jesus' second coming. I'm pretty sure you would agree with me that the greatest event in human history up until this point has been the resurrection of Christ. Would you agree with me on that? There have been some pretty big events in human history. Biblically speaking, right? The creation of the world, that's, that's a pretty big one. <laughs> that's a pretty big one. Noah's flood, that was a big one. The walls of Jericho falling down, the Red Sea parting, Elijah being taken up in chariots of fire. That, that's pretty awesome. <laughs> there have been some pretty amazing events, biblically speaking and even just historically speaking, but I believe the greatest event in all of human history to date is not not only the death and burial of Christ right many people have died a horrible death and been buried but when you accompany that with the fact that he overcame the grave and came back and said be be of good cheer it is I be not afraid oh man that changes everything about how we view life it brings this into play it brings this please hear me now there's there's two sides to this Jesus said to his followers just a couple of days before he died, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. You can follow me on your paper, by the way. I've given you the verse there. John 14, verse three. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. For anybody who is in love with the Lord Jesus Christ, is there a more precious statement? I, you know, if you've got a pen, maybe you can underline that. I will come again. So why does Peter, in verse 13, the verse we read, chapter three, verse 13, according to his promise, do you see that? Why does he speak of this second coming of christ as if it's a fact it's a promise jesus said i will come again and we've never seen his word to fail all the promises of god in christ are yea and amen god help me i don't want to get off topic too much you understand what the word amen means that means i agree that means that's right that means so be it We we talk about the promises of God. They're yea, they're yes, it's going to happen, and amen. That's right. That's right. I'll give you another one. I believe, yes, I've given it to you on your paper. Matthew 26, verse 64. Jesus is standing before his accusers at this mock trial in the middle of the early morning. They've asked him, are you the son of God? Jesus saith unto him, verse 64, thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It's the same promise. Why did I give you this verse? This is not usually the verse that preachers offer whenever they're talking about Jesus' second coming. There are other verses that Jesus mentioned as the one just above that. They tend to resonate with us a little more. Jesus is talking to unbelievers in verse 64. People that did not think he was the Messiah. They thought he was a blasphemer and a deceiver and he even tells them, guys, just want you to know, the next big thing is you're going to see me coming in the clouds of heaven. I'm going to be coming back with the host, with the heavenly host, the angels, the army. We're coming back. Just want you to know, you, 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 might, you might best me today and hang me on a cross, but that's not the end of me you're going to see me again. He says this to believers, I'm coming again. He says it to unbelievers, I'm coming again. Then it would do the world well to orientate themselves and say, we have to do something with this promise. He said he's coming again. Now, how should that affect us? This may not be a very fitting illustration, but it's as good as I can do. If I were to say to you, Uh, sir ma'am this week I'll try my best to swing by I'd like to pay you a visit the next question from you would probably be when fair enough right I mean we got schedules we got lives can you tell me the day or the hour and if I say no I, I can't I'm sorry I'm not quite sure how my schedule is going to look but I just want you to know sometime this week I will be passing by Let me tell you what I do not expect. Based on that statement, I do not expect you to call in sick at work, stay at home, paralyzed in fear, going, he might knock on the door. He might knock on the door. He might knock on the door. Is it now? Is it now? Is it now? This promise of me swinging by to pay you a visit should not be a paralyzing promise, right? Right? I don't expect you to stop everything you're doing, but I would appreciate you factoring into your schedule that I did say I'm going to come. And that way you could at least leave a note on the door if you have to step out or make arrangements or you can contact me throughout the week and say, hey, are you coming yet? Because I want to make sure I don't miss this opportunity to see you face to face. I would very much appreciate you making plans and orientating your life in accordance with my promise of coming to visit. And I believe that is exactly the attitude that Jesus would have us take, the posture he would have us be in when he says, I'm coming again, he doesn't expect us to sit there paralyzed in fear. Oh no, he's coming, he's coming. But rather to be occupied and busy about the father's business until he comes. Let's work our way through this chapter. Chapter three, verse number one. Chapter three, verse one. And this will be part number one on your outline for those of you that like to fill it in. Due to the fact that Jesus is coming again. Point one, we must talk about the laughing of the scoffers. That's point one, the laughing of the scoffers. Chapter three, verse one says, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance he knows that these believers have heard about the second coming. This is not a new truth to them. He's just reminding them of how important it is. Bear in mind, in the early days of the church, there were many people teaching against the second coming of Christ. Some had even said that the resurrection had passed already. So the apostles were constantly reminding these believers Jesus hasn't come the second time yet, the resurrection hasn't happened yet. We must stay ready. In verse 2, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first. And then he's going to, in verse 3, introduce us to the laughing of the scoffers. I want to, before we get into their laughing, their mocking, can I just point out something I believe that's important in verse 2? Do you see how Peter takes the words of the Holy Prophets, that's the Old Testament, and he puts it on equal ground with the commandment of the apostles in the New Testament? By this time, even the Christians in the earliest days of the church, when they talked about the Bible, when they used the word Scripture, it not only referred to the Old Testament, but now they had apostolic writing. Peter's Peter was writing epistles, James, Paul had written many epistles. We're going to read about that later today. And these early Christians viewed all of those writings on the same level. And he's telling them, guys, I want to bring to your remembrance what you've been reading in your Bibles. As you read the Old Testament, you will find 40 about, 48 prophecies that speak about the first coming of Jesus Christ. And every one of those prophecies were fulfilled right down to the letter. Very impressive prophecies. 48 of them. 48. That's a fairly large number of prophecies. That's concerning the first coming of Christ. How many prophecies do you think you would find about the second coming of Christ? Not 48. There are... conservatively speaking no less than 500 prophecies about the second coming of Christ I've heard some say even closer to a thousand that is the emphasis you find not only in the old but even in the new testament that we are to be looking forward to this day that Jesus comes to rule as king of kings and lord of lords be mindful, he says. I'm reminding you, remember what the Bible says. As soon as you cling on to your Bible, however, as soon as you make this statement, I believe that Jesus rose again, and therefore I believe his promise that he will come again, you are guaranteed to become a laughingstock in various places people will automatically equate you with that bumalart on the side of the street holding the sign saying, the end is near. (laughs) The end is near. How do we deal with this laughing? Look at verse number three. Knowing this first. So remember your Bible, but, but don't forget this. Know this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. He says, guys, people are going to come scoffing. That's mocking, making fun of you for what you believe. Not only about the second coming, but just making the statement, I believe the Bible. I believe what it says about Christ and about my life and about my family, my work. People will laugh. Listen, if the devil cannot trick you out of your faith, that's chapter 2, then he will try to tease you out of your faith. That's chapter 3. If the devil cannot lead you astray, that's chapter 2, then he will try to laugh at you until it hurts so bad you put down the faith. That's chapter 3. One way or the other, as soon as you take a stand, as soon as you receive the faith, chapter 1, begin to go further, chapter 1, and to funnel your efforts through the Bible, chapter 1, the devil will not leave that alone. He sends somebody to try to confuse you and if that doesn't work, he brings the world around you. Peer pressure. Druk. Did I get it right? Chrup druk. Druk. Ah, I forgot the S. Yes, it's a plural. There's so many chrups. <laughs> many, many chrups. Let's not forget the chrups. S- chrups. They, they will. They will. Pr- they'll come around and try to laugh you out of your faith. Let me, let me put a little uh, asterisk on this, however. When people gather around you and begin to laugh, that is always hurtful. That is always hurtful. However, when somebody's laughing, the right thing to do is stop and look at what they're laughing at and say, is there a reason for them to be laughing? I remember years ago, I must have been in the fifth grade, so this would be... 11 years old maybe, 10, 10, 11, somewhere in there. I woke up one morning late for school and wasn't thinking very clearly as I got dressed. I only lived a few steps down from the school, so I was walking to school. I quickly grabbed a white shirt and threw it on and uh, back in the day, you know, I always had an undershirt because it was cold. I put, it, put that white shirt on, put some pants on, headed out the door, and I'm, here I am in school. I'm sitting through first hour, second hour, third hour. Then it's time for recess and bathroom break and all of that. And I kept noticing throughout the morning kids staring at me. and <laughs> You know how kids do. Right? Adults do it too. We're just a little smarter about how we do it. But, but kids, you know, laughing at me. <laughs> and nobody would tell me what... I kept looking at him going, what? I don't get it. I wasn't the most popular kid anyway, but I, I couldn't figure out why is everybody laughing at me? Until it was time for the recess and the bathroom break, I stepped into the restroom, and there, of course, you have the large mirror, and I looked. I had forgotten to take my pajamas off. I just put my white shirt on top. Now, that's not so bad until you know what my pajamas were. I had a very bright yellow shirt with Batman on it. <laughs> And if you're like me, for pajamas, you wear the older clothes, so this shirt didn't quite fit properly. (laughs) It was from when I was seven or eight. I had grown a little bit by then, so all these kids could see this very childish Batman shirt shining through my white shirt. They had a reason to chuckle. And now I would have really appreciated one mature 10-year-old to come up and say, hey, Uh, you might want to take that undershirt (laughs) off. That would have been very kind, but of course, kids being kids, they all just laughed. The reason I share that story with you, when somebody begins to laugh at what you're saying about Christ, about the Bible, about being a Christian, you might want to stop and actually think about what you've said because there are a lot of things that Christians say that are, it's absolute nonsense. And even myself I appreciate that they mean well and that they're trying to say something that is meaningful and right and helpful, but it may not be grounded in reality. It may not be biblical. We talked about this last week a little bit. You can't just make stuff up, slap the name Jesus on it and say, "See, that's the truth." So sometimes the, the mockers, the laughers, the scorners of the world, they're laughing because sometimes what Christians say are, "It's just absolutely ridiculous. So we, we would do well to at least take a look in the mirror and go, is there a, re, a, a solid reason for them to be laughing? And investigate what claims we're making. Can I just refer you, maybe turn one page back if, if you'd rather, I've given it to you on your outline. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Peter says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear that word hope can I ask you to zero in on that that word hope when you and I as Christians read that word that should immediately trigger a a mental response about the second coming of Christ because that is our blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. So when we begin to be persecuted, people are laughing at us, even trying to hurt us, kill us, take our lands, our houses, that type of thing. People will begin to ask questions. Why are you holding on to this belief? Peter says you need to be ready to give an answer. Notice this in verse 15. Give an answer to every man that asketh you a what? There needs to be a reason that you believe what you believe. Can I tell you something that I believe is shameful? But for somebody to claim to be a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, or for somebody to say, yeah, I've been a Christian my entire life, and yet they have not read the Bible once, and when you ask them, can you please tell me why you're a Christian? My grandma was a Christian my mom and dad was a christian that's not an answer people will laugh that is not a reason that is not a legitimate reason the greek word behind reason i find this fascinating is logos do you know the significance of that word it is the word word (laughs) it means word in the beginning right the word was with god the word was god that word is logos You need to have a personal relationship with Christ, a reason to believe him. Jesus did not show up and say, hey, believe me. Why? Because I said so. (laughs) Believe me. Why? Well, because this is what I feel is right. That's not a reason. Christianity is filled with robust arguments, with real reasons that are grounded in reality, grounded in historical events. We can take our faith, which is the Bible, and we can validate it with other historical documents, with archaeology, with science. We can apply it to our lives and watch it work. There are many reasons we can give for holding on to the hope that Jesus will soon appear and we live accordingly. We are to be ready to answer that question. This lays some groundwork. Come back to 2 Peter 3. In verse number 3, at the end of it, it says, walking after their own lusts, verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. I find this very fascinating. Peter nailed it. I don't even know if he was trying to prophesy as much here as teach a lesson, but he knit, I think he gave us a prophecy. You know, for hundreds of years, the scientific community said there was no beginning to the universe. The universe is eternal. It's always existed. And then the idea of a big bang and that there was actually a beginning, that's a relatively new teaching within the scientific community, relatively speaking. You know what Peter said would happen in the last days? He said, people will doubt that Jesus is coming. They will say, where's the promise? From the earliest days until now, things have just been going on the same. Nothing's ever changed. So why would we think something big is going to change? But they admit there's a beginning for the creation. Did you see that? Even the guy that doubts the promise of Christ has to admit, yep, there is a beginning. I find that fascinating. How did Peter know that even the doubters would have to admit there was a beginning to the creation. I want you to notice something more practical about it, though. Their doubts arise, their worldview, if I can put it like that, the way that they view the world, the reason that they doubt the promise of Jesus coming, it's at the end of verse 3. They're walking after their own lust. It is not a convenient thing to believe. If you're busy trying to get away with Various types of sin. Why would you want to say that Jesus is coming? That's not a very convenient doctrine. Be very careful, friend, if you're here today, that you do not form your belief system based on what is convenient for your life. Rather, base it on what God has told you in the Bible. In verse number five, he says, for this they willingly are ignorant of. They are willingly ignorant of something. It's one thing to be ignorant You don't know something. It's another thing to be willingly ignorant. You say, what's the difference? If you're willingly ignorant, there is evidence right before you, but you're not willing to look at it. You have the tools, you have the resources, but you refuse to put in the effort to actually examine it. So he says, this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water, and in the water. Now, for those of you making notes, that's Genesis chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is day three of creation when God brought forth the dry land out of the water. Verse 6, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Speaking about Noah's flood. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store. So why is it that the waters do not overwhelm the earth like they did in Noah's day? Because God said so. It's the same thing in the beginning when on day one, let there be. Day two, let there be. Day three, let there be. What gave order to the creation? Why do we have order instead of chaos? For the scoffers, for the doubters, this, for the atheistic mindset, that's a very difficult question. Why do we not see random activity amongst the natural world? Because there was an intelligence behind it that designed it and said, work like this. It's the same reason when you hit certain buttons on your computer, you expect certain things to happen. Although on my computer, I think it is a process of evolution. (laughs) It came about by happy accidents (laughs) because I can press a button and who knows what will happen, right? The whole system will crash. But we hit this button, we expect this to open. We hit that button, we expect this to close. Why? Because there's an intelligence behind it that designed it. And it's the same thing with creation. Why do we expect order instead of chaos? Because God set the boundaries. But then when humanity went off the rails... God warned them over and over. We studied it last week, did we not, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He said, guys, you've gone so far off. Every imagination of the heart is only evil continually. God said, I'm going to have to pull back the boundaries for a little while, flood this earth, and start again with Noah and his boys. This is a catastrophic event, a once-off global event that changed literally the face of the world And it was an attempt to bring man back in line with God. There has been a global event. There there is a precedent that has been set. There's a reason to say that God could do something that would change the entire world in one day. Now, when you propose the idea of Noah's flood in a scientific community, do you know the response you get? I can see some of you are giving the same response. It's an absolute joke to them. They say that that's just biblical mythology. Why not study it then? Why not grant us a billion dollars to go and dig in various places and find the proof because those that have so far the scientific evidence has supported the idea that there was a cataclysmic event right about the time that the Bible predicts. But if you were to prove it What would that do to people's worldview? Then you would have to admit that, yes, what the Bible says about that event was true. Therefore, this next big big event might be true, and that's not convenient for the way we want to live. It comes down to a problem in their heart that leads to a problem in their head. They want to get away with sin, so they cannot believe certain things. They will not look at the evidence. They don't want to. They don't want to believe that jesus might actually be coming can i just mention one more thing before we move to point two on this it says they are willingly ignorant of this thing they refuse to look into the evidence i think what's even sadder is that there are professing believers that are also willingly ignorant of what the bible has to say about these things We wouldn't expect somebody that does not believe in God, that has no affection for Jesus. We would not expect them to acquaint themselves with the Bible. We would, however, expect that people who claim to know God personally and believe and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we would expect them to be incredibly familiar with the resources that God has made available to us. Yet to this day, professing Christians say things like this, I believe the Bible. Have you read it? Well, no, but I believe it. You own one. Most of you maybe own five or six, but they are merely decorations in your homes instead of determining factors in your lives. It sits on your table. It's not that you're ignorant, but willingly ignorant. You refuse to read it. And God only knows why those excuses would be. The next part. Let's look at verses 8 down to 10. Because of this fact, this biblical fact that Jesus is coming again, and we've just read some will doubt this fact. Because of that, well, I should say the reason for that doubt, some say in verse number 8 and 9, you can see in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. They say, well, the reason that we don't believe it is because everything's been going on the same since the beginning. Nothing's ever changed. So Jesus said he's coming, but where is he? It's been a long time and he hasn't pitched up. So he's, not, he's, he's too slow. So point two on your outline, the Lord is not slack. The Lord is not slack. That's what they accuse him of. They say, but the promise, you know, he made it almost 2,000 years ago. Where is he? Well, let's take a look at that. Verse 8. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years as one day. What's his point here? God doesn't count time the same way we do. He doesn't look at time like we do. In the book of Psalms, chapter 90 and verse 4, Moses wrote this. Moses only has I, I believe two Psalms in the entire book of Psalms. This is one of them. He says, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. What's his point? God looks at time differently than we do. How about this one? Jesus said in Revelation 22, last thing he said in the Bible, surely, I come quickly surely I come quickly now I read that and I think wow his quickly and my quickly are not the same if Jesus had come in human form as a South African he would have said I'm coming now what does that mean is that tomorrow is that next year that could be a thousand years we don't know what now is surely I come quickly yes but based on whose calendar whose watch are you looking at when you say that remember that it is God who's making that promise and therefore we must use God's watch we must use God's calendar we mustn't think that he's dragging his feet but rather that he has a very divine purpose in in what seems to us he is waiting so long why? why? Have you ever wondered this? I've tried to think this through a few times, had this conversation with a few people. Why didn't Jesus come in the days of Noah? You ever thought about that? Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. That's a pretty good time for Jesus to come. <laughs> just, just pitch up right after that and do what is necessary, make the sacrifice, and the problem solved, right? Why, why drag it out? Why not come in the days of Noah? You realize Noah's flood happened about 2,500 years before the death of Christ. So from Genesis 1 to Genesis 6, you have about 1,500 years. That's a lot of time in the first six chapters of your Bible. And then for the rest of the book of Genesis, you have about another 900 years. So Genesis covers a long period of time. Why did Jesus wait until what we now know as 0 AD to come into the world? Why wait until 33 AD to die on the cross or rise again? Why? Why then? Why not come sooner? Hasn't there been many, many problems that could have been fixed or maybe even avoided had you come sooner, right? I think it's a fair question. But in the New Testament, we read this, that God sent his son, made of a woman, in due time. We find that phrase in in many places. He came in due time. We could only know this through hindsight. But looking back now, if you look back at history, there couldn't have been a more perfect time for Jesus to come than when he did. Because right when he came, the Greco-Roman world system that had been put in place allowed the gospel to be taken out to the four corners of the earth quickly had he come before that there is a very small chance that his message could have been carried to everybody else on the planet like he intended there was a reason that he waited until the time that he did he came at due time he was working on his schedule it would be really nice if jesus were to pitch up today yes in our minds wouldn't that just fix it all Wouldn't that be the answer to so many problems, not just in your own life, but in politics, hunger, crime, racism, all of that stuff would be over. Wouldn't that be great? We look at that and think, God, why are you waiting so long? He's already proven to us that he's working on a schedule and in due time, he will come. In due time, he will come. I want to give you something practical to think about on this. However, verse 9, if we can read that together. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, slowness, but his long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. May I please just lean into the last part of that verse? While we're waiting, you should view this as an opportunity to fulfill the will of God, and that is if you have never repented. If you have never turned from what you are trusting, turn from what you are and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to turn from one thing and turn to another. Change your mind and say, I'm no longer going to trust the way that I am as being sufficient To earn eternal life, I'm going to put my faith and trust in what the Lord Jesus Christ did. I'm going to believe that his resurrection allows him to give me life. I'm going to put my faith in that. That God is waiting for people to turn and to repent, to to come to him. You say, but why is he waiting so long? I'm glad he didn't come in 1995. I got saved in 1996 (laughs) man if he had come in 1995 wow I I would have missed out on a lot of stuff most likely eternity would be very different for me you see while we're waiting folks there's something very practical about this while we're waiting we can be busy fixing things so that when he does appear we don't stand before him with shame so rather than looking at it, being frustrated and going, yeah, he's not coming. This is I don't understand, God. Why don't you just come and fix everything? Don't be angry because he's working on a different schedule than you. We 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 don't we tend to do this? God, I have problems. I want you to fix it now. Give me the answer now. I'm sick, I'm tired, I'm sick and tired of. What's going on in my life? Fix it now. And because God doesn't show up as quickly as we want him to in our life, in our circumstances, we tend to get frustrated. Jesus, when he was teaching his disciples about the second coming, he said this, Be ye therefore ready, for in such an hour, as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. He speaks about a servant being given responsibility to take care of the people around him. And he says, but... And if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken. And Jesus goes on to say that that person's end is going to be very difficult. They'll be appointed their portion with the hypocrites, he says. Where, where did the problem enter in? That evil servant said, My Lord delays his coming. He got frustrated with the Lord taking too long. So he he begins to abuse those around him to smite the fellow servants. Why not rather say, Lord, I don't know why you haven't come yet, but you've you've never given a promise you didn't fulfill. I'm gonna stay busy about your business and do something with this extra time. I have a chance now to do something for you to lay up treasure on the other side. Let me use every moment we're going to talk more about that just now verse number 10 he says but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night the Lord is not slack he's not slow he's not dragging his feet Jesus did say I go to prepare a place for you didn't he he's busy working (laughs) he's preparing a place for you he's busy are you are you The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. He's not going to announce the day or the hour. The idea is that we just stay ready, vigilant, sober, so that when he appears, we're not filled with shame. That brings me to point number three in your outline. Starting in the middle of verse 10 and to the end, these are lessons for the saints. The fact that Jesus is coming again brings about three different lessons For the saints. So, verse ten. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat; the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So, maybe you've heard somebody make this statement before. They say it's all going to burn. This is where they get that from. It is literally all going to burn. If I can go a little deep with you, is that okay? Can I give you something a little deep? The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. But remember in verse 8, one day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So the day of the Lord is actually a thousand years long. In Revelation 20, we find that when Jesus comes, he establishes his kingdom on the earth and it lasts for a thousand years. At the end of those thousand years, heaven and earth pass away. And that is when, it's at the end of the day of the Lord when everything burns up with this fervent heat. I just want you to understand the timing of it. In verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Peter has made a very valid point. Here's your first lesson. On, on your paper, I've given you some subpoints to this. Emphasize the eternal. These are the lessons for the saints. We're not to sit around arguing about the exact day and hour. Is it a pre-tribulation? Is it a mid-tribulation? That's a valid conversation, but that's not the focal point of this. What do we need to do about it? Emphasize the eternal. Everything you're looking at is going to burn up. Everything in your garage is going to burn up. Madam, all the shoes in your closet going to burn now listen I know your heart might have just sunk to the floor no not my shit gentlemen all those toys in the garage that you've spent years saving up purchase you shine it you polish it you use it it's, it's gonna burn you're gonna leave it behind Paul said, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And yet we spend so much of our time on these temporary things. So much of our heart, our effort, our sweat, our blood is in these temporary things. For a moment, a blip on God's radar do these things appear. And yet it gets our whole body, soul, and strength, everything into it emphasize the eternal he says guys if you know it's all going to burn up what what should really be important to you the relationship that you have with God listen you're going to have that forever that will never end so why not emphasize that holy conversation that's the way you live godliness that will mean something into eternity In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talked about bodily exercise. Listen, some of you need to hear this. Bodily exercise profits a little. It helps. Now, why did Paul say it helps a little? Because it only helps in this life. So if you want to make this life better, exercise. I'm waiting for the amen. Okay, don't don't make this life better then. Sit around, you couch potato. That's your problem. <laughs> Bodily exercise profits little. But godliness, Paul says, that profits to, to life everlasting. That has an effect on eternity, so rather emphasize that. Verse 12, Paul or Peter rather is going to repeat the point he just made just to emphasize it. Looking for and hasting. This is good. This, this works well for the Afrikaans. Hastach. Hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So he's repeated his point from verse number 10. It's all going to burn. So since we are looking forward to the end of things, why shouldn't we put the emphasis in the right place? On making sure our relationship with God is exactly where it ought to be if I were to tell you we're taking a trip church congratulations you've won a trip we're all going to go you say pastor where we're going to go? you need to know where we're going so you can pack appropriately yes now for some of you that would matter I know some of you bachelors you don't care you just <laughs> you just pick up whatever I got on off we go we'll figure it out as we go but for some of us we like to pack you like to plan where are we going we're going to Siberia yeah, some of you are like, I'm going to another church. I don't want to, why are we going to Siberia? If we're going to Siberia, you pack one way, right? There, there's, you're going to put some very warm clothes in the suitcase, and there are certain things you don't need, like a bathing suit. You don't, you don't need, you leave that out of, of the suitcase. Fair enough. Now, what if I were to say, church, congratulations, we're going to Hawaii? <laughs> you're like, yeah, give me a membership card. I'm signing up you would pack differently, would you not? Yeah. Then the bathing suits in possibly and other, all those warm jackets might be left out. You would, it, it would change the way that you prepare for the future. It would change what you're doing now. You would begin to pack differently. So verse number 13, nevertheless we according to his promise look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth what? So anything that is not right does not get to stay so here's the advice take the things that are wrong and get rid of them now because the only thing that's going to be found in the new heavens and the new earth is righteousness that's it so if it's not right get it out get it out now verse 14 wherefore beloved seeing that you look for such things Peter is assuming that you are can I just ask you are you are you looking forward to that? Does the second coming of Christ, this exceeding great and precious promise, does it have any effect, uh, any effect on the way you're packing for eternity? He told us where we're going. He told us that this trip could happen at any moment. You better have your bags packed. You better pack them now while you have a chance. Looking for such thing or look for such things, he said, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. How should we pack? Pack peace, leave out the spots. Let me put it another way. No grudges or smudges. (laughs) Leave behind grudges and smudges. Let me break that down a little bit. If you have a problem with somebody else in your life, something that has not been dealt with yet, you need to deal with that. Here's a verse that I don't hear preached on very much whatsoever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven do you know what that means that means the grudges that you're holding on to now they're bound you haven't forgiven you haven't loosed that thing yet you haven't let go of that yet if it's bound down here you say well I'm just going to die and not talk about it and just leave it alone you're going to deal with it eventually leave behind the grudges pack peace resolve the conflict Do what is necessary to make your relationship right with your brothers and sisters in Christ or anybody in this world for that matter. And then without spot and blameless, what are we talking about there? Anything that you believe the Lord might be offended by. Because one day you will stand before him and he will examine what you've done. Do you believe that he might point the finger at that particular thing that you're doing and say, I'm not happy with this. Why did you do this? I'm talking specifically about things that maybe you've been justifying for years in your life. You just think, well, nobody's perfect. We all got issues. And yes, amen, we all do. But we should be working to get those spots out. We should be making an effort to grow towards blamelessness. That is becoming more like Christ and less like ourselves. Not simply giving the excuse, well, nobody's perfect, and then no effort goes into getting rid of the smudges. No grudges, no smudges. Verse 15, he says, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. So we look at what men say is the Lord is being slow or slack. How do we count that? H- how do we view that? We don't look at it and go, shame, God is late. God's never early, God's never late, God's always right on time, right? How do we look at that situation? Do we, do we get frustrated and say, my Lord delays His coming so I can just, I'll just go do what I feel like doing? No, we look at this and say, God's waiting. This gives me a chance to help somebody else get saved. This gives me a chance to get my laundry in order, to get the spots out to pack peace and leave out the dirty laundry I have time to do something for the Lord because one day folks you'll never have a chance to pray again you realize that you get to heaven no more praying people in hell pray they don't get answered but they pray people in heaven don't pray you can converse with the Lord, but there's no, need to, there's no need to put that request out there by faith like we do today. No more prayer, no more preaching. You'll never have a chance to tell anybody else about Christ. This is your one shot. This is your chance to walk by faith and not by sight. The moment the trumpet sounds and you're standing in the presence of the Lord, never again will you have a chance. To say, Lord, I'll do it because you said so. I don't need to, you don't have to physically come down and explain it to me. You've told me in your word, I'll do it because you said so. That's enough for me. You have that chance now. Never again will you have that chance. Take advantage of these moments that you have. So, sub point two, under the lessons for the saints, emphasize the eternal and then manage your minutes. Manage your minutes. We look at this extra time that we have as an opportunity to do something for God. I'm sure all of us at a certain point in our life, we have had the blessed experience of sitting in a queue at a government office, have we not? <laughs> Except for you younger folks, you don't know how, how wonderful this experience is, but don't worry, it's part of being a full vowsiness. You'll grow up and you'll get to go through this great, great blessed event of sitting at home affairs or at the... Department of Motor Vehicles waiting, 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 waiting. (laughs) I went to Home Affairs a while back. I'm sitting in the queue. I need just one piece of paper stamped. It'll only take 10 seconds, yet I have to wait in the line literally four or five hours. That's how it goes. We all know this, right? I have two ways of looking at this extra time that I have. I could sit there, like many people around me that day, <laughs> extremely grumpy, and for, f- ah, it's amazing, how can you for four hours come up with different complaints? <laughs> Yoh, that takes effort. <laughs> That's hard work to complain for four hours straight, but some people did. I knew I'd be waiting. I brought my Bible. I brought a bunch of gospel tracts, and I brought another book so that I could switch off and read that a little bit, you know, go back and forth. So I thought, well, since I'm going to be here a while, I can work on my sermon for Sunday. I read several, several chapters in, you know, my just daily Bible reading, had time to pray. I passed out tracts to everybody in the, in the room. Why not? They can't go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> they can't run away. You're, you're going to hear it. And, and you know what? I found out there's no law against singing in public. This is back when I actually had a voice and I could do it. So I just sat there and I sang the songs that I knew loud enough, not, not obnoxiously, but loud enough to where everybody around me could hear it, right? I thought it'd be a little awkward to just stand up and say, the Bible says and preach, so I, I sang the gospel to them. I am not saying that you have to do that, okay? You don't, although please help yourself. I'd love to hear the stories. You don't have to do it like that. I only give you that story to say take advantage of the extra time you have. You don't need to sit around complaining about how everything's falling to pieces. Yes, we know it. It's going to burn. We get it. Now, what are you doing about it? Yes, the Titanic is sinking. So get people in the lifeboats. Don't sit there in the middle of the Titanic, in the middle of the ocean going, we're going down. I can't believe he hit an iceberg. Oh, this captain, he doesn't know what he's doing. You're not helping. You're wasting the few valuable moments you have. People are playing nearer my God in the background. Get people in the (laughs) lifeboats. For those of you that know the story, that's what they, they actually played that song. Lastly, Verses 16 down to 8. Well, let's finish verse 15 so that you see it. Even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. So whoever Peter's writing to, Paul has also been writing to them. There is an emphasis. Do you see the emphasis swinging back to the written documents that we still have? This is, this is nothing short of a miracle that we still have these same documents These same words from 2,000 years ago. Verse 16, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things. So Peter says, Paul, every time he wrote to somebody, he would mention the second coming of Christ. Kind of important then, isn't it? And then Peter admits, and thank God he did, in which are some things hard to be understood. Amen, Peter. (laughs) You ain't kidding about that. Paul was aware of this. Paul would write to the Corinthians and he told them, guys, we're all gonna uh, come up in the resurrection. And the Corinthians didn't all believe it. They said, yeah, but what kind of body will we have when we come up? Because they they assumed when Paul said resurrection, he's talking about zombie apocalypse. (laughs) (laughs) And so they, they said, we're not gonna believe in a resurrection because you can't explain the kind of body that comes out of the grave. Paul said, come on, well, I'll tell you the word he used. He said, thou fools, (laughs) which if you'd like the updated English, you bunch of idiots. (laughs) That's that's the updated English on that. He said, guys, think about it. When you plant a seed in the ground, that seed changes into something different and comes up out of the ground. The same body that goes into the ground doesn't come back out. You plant a seed, something else comes up out of the ground. He said, our body gets planted corruptible. It comes up incorruptible. This mortal will put on immortality. So yes, there were some hard things that Paul dealt with in these epistles. He says at the end of verse 16, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest. It means they twist it. They pervert it. They privately interpret it as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before. You know that people are going to twist the scripture. You know that they're going to privately interpret it. You know false teachers will come. You know that people will laugh at you because you take a stand on the Bible. Because you take a stand for Christ. You know these things. He says, Beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Subpoint point three. Steadfast in the Scripture. What are the lessons for the saints? What do we do about this fact of Jesus coming again? Number one, emphasize the eternal. Number two, manage your minutes. Make the most of this opportunity. And number three, be steadfast in the Scripture. The devil will do everything he can to try to distract you and get you away from it. Try to confuse you. Stay steadfast in it. Verse 18, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to him be glory both now and forever amen and now before you just quickly pass over that think about what Peter's saying there both now and forever Jesus is coming again so some people might get the idea fine I'll deal with Jesus when he shows up and they'll put it off instead of right now making a decision what will you do with Jesus Because right now, he desires a relationship with you. Right now, he desires to change you, conform you to his image. Right now, you can be giving him glory with your life. That's not something we're waiting on when we get to heaven. Then we'll sit around strumming a harp, singing. That's not, we don't wait for that. Right now, things can change. Growing grace. How do we do this? We read in our Bibles about Christ then we can take a look at our lives we can compare the two and say how can I change my life to become more like his and grow that grace is God giving you something you don't deserve there's another way to understand grace God doing something for you that you could not do for yourself you cannot change you to the extent that God would look down and go well done that's what I want That is something God has to do through you, right? You have to yield to it. You do participate in that. But this is God doing something. This is chapter 1, verse 5, 6, 7. When he says, add to your faith, knowledge, temperance, virtue, all of those things, that's the grace. Growing grace. When we talk about grace, let me give you an idea what I mean here he gives you five talents now you're supposed to multiply it. it should be five other talents he gives you two you should make another two if he gives you one pound by the time Jesus shows up you've turned it into 10 pounds do you understand those parables Jesus said that he gives his servants something to work with he goes away when he comes back he expects to see that you've done something with what he gave you growing in grace I'll give you an example learn, learn a new language this is what the bible refers to when it speaks about diverse tongues speaking in tongues it has nothing to do with gibberish it has everything to do with learning a new language so that you can minister to somebody else in that language some of you in this room speak five or six languages you could use that for christ in a big way learn the discipleship material so that you could teach somebody else Learn how to listen to people's problems so that you could counsel them and give advice and a word of wisdom. Learn how to manage your money so that you can support a gospel ministry or missionaries in a faraway land. Learn how to do more for Christ today than you did last year. Grow in grace and grow in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I have finished on this thought. I want to finish right where Peter finished. Growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What scares me, for a lot of professing Christians, they know as much today about Christ as they did five years ago. It's a very sad reality that for most people, what they learned in Sunday school as a child, that's as much knowledge about Christ that they'll ever have. They are vaguely acquainted with the stories of Jesus doing a few miracles. They know the historical fact that he rose from the dead. They have no idea how it personally applies to them and why it should completely change their life in every way. It is our responsibility to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. We don't have to figure it all out in one day or one week or one year, but we should be growing. We should be making this forward progress. Why? Jesus is coming. It's a biblical fact. We want to stand before him and say, Lord, I did something with what you gave me. Let's all stand if you would, please. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed for a few moments. Heads bowed and eyes closed. As the music plays, I'd like to ask you to just examine your heart. Ask yourself a few questions this morning. First question, if Jesus showed up right now, is that a good thing for you or a bad thing? You say, Pastor, I don't know. Haven't really thought about it. Mm. Mm, 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 mm. He said he's going he's to swing by any day now. He'll come with the trumpet sound and call you home. Have you done anything to prepare for that? Second question, can I ask you this, please? A- ask yourself this. If Jesus were to come right now and call his people home, would you be one of them? I'll ask that more clearly. Have you been born again? Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now that's what Jesus said. He didn't say you have to be a member of this church or that. He didn't say anything about baptism or the Nachmal. He he said "You, you must be born again. If Jesus came right now and called his sheep out, because he said he would a shepherd he said as a shepherd calls a sheep he'd lead his sheep out by name call them by name and lead them out would he call your name would you be one of those sheep ask yourself this morning examine your your heart those lessons emphasizing the eternal managing your minutes steadfast in the scripture how, how are you doing with those things possibly this week you can take a look at those three things and put a little effort into utilizing those lessons Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach this morning and to think about and to remind, uh, to myself included, I, I need the reminder that Jesus is coming again. Lord, help us. We, as you commanded, you said, be also ready. Lord, maybe somebody is here today and you, God, you know their hearts. They've come today, but they've never been born again. They don't know you personally. Please, Lord, oh, you are not willing that any perish, but that all come to repentance. This could be the day that they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Please, Lord, work on that person's heart. Let them see clearly how much you love them, care about them, and want them to come home father for the rest of us please god let the reality of your coming we want to see it yes but even before we see it we want to get we want to be prepared we want to be busy packing for that trip help us lord daily to be ready for that we ask it in jesus name amen